0: Hello and welcome to the Serial Talker podcast. I'm Peter Von Gomm. We have an amazing true story ahead of us here, guys. This comes from James Forsyth, who is from the greatest generation. He was a GI in World War II and was a prisoner of war, captured by the Germans during the Battle of the Bulge. And wow, Curtis Gomes, who reached out to me, sent on these memoirs from his friend James and was kind enough to share with us. It's a riveting, heart-wrenching story that needs to be told. There are not many U.S. World War II veterans still with us, including my father, World War II vet stationed in Japan for more than a year and a half. Just over 300,000 are still alive, including one of my uncles, two of my uncles, one is nearly 103 years old. The other is in his late 90s. Earl Deppner and Ed Deppner. We recently lost Art Deppner and a while back Arnold Deppner. All four Deppner boys, World War II vets. So, the greatest generation is still the greatest generation. And some of them are still with us and they need a big shout out for all the sacrifices and horror that they dealt with on our behalf. So, without further ado, let's get into the story with the opening words from Curtis Gomes. I met Mr. James Forsyth while I was working a security detail at the courthouse around 2001. He was having difficulty passing through the electronic metal detector due to the machine indicating that he was carrying a large piece of metal. I had to search him, and I located a rectangular piece of metal about three inches in length in his pocket. It was very strange-looking, and I questioned him about its origin. He told me that he'd been carrying it for 57 years, and that it was a kind of dog tag. He always had it with him. I told him I'd never seen a dog tag like that one. He told me that it was a German ID tag that all U.S. prisoners of war were issued and had to carry at all times. He has never stopped carrying it, and has never forgotten the ordeal that he and others endured. That started our friendship of twelve years or so. His story was fascinating and unique. I encouraged him to write down his recollections of that period, and to send me a copy. Here is just some of what he wrote. His story, from beginning to end was incredibly interesting and one that should not be lost to time. He passed away at age 93 in 2014. I'm proud to say that he was my friend. Here, in his own words, are just some of his writings describing his experiences during World War II. Kriegsgefangener, Prisoner of War, number X11A081494 I was captured December 17, 1944, at Wintersfeld, Belgium. I would like to elaborate on the events and reasons leading up to my capture. However, these few paragraphs are related to prisoner of war. I'll discuss the events leading up to my capture in other areas of my memories. I was in Company A of the 146th Armored Infantry Battalion, just before capture. We, the G.I.s, were scattered sparsely in a holding action for a couple of weeks before December 16th, 1944. We were almost at leisure, with little or no action, for several days. We were issued only 40 rounds of caliber thirty ammunition, or approximately 40 rounds for whatever weapon you carried, if it was small arms. We were informed that there was a dock worker strike on the East Coast, and that the dock workers were on strike for better working conditions. They should have seen our working conditions. They wouldn't load ships anywhere on the East Coast. Therefore, ammunition was rationed. On or about December 10th, 1944, we began to hear distant rumbling, similar to a thunderstorm or distant tornado. About December 12, we could distinguish that a great amount of military equipment was moving. There were no airplanes flying. The weather was overcast with light rain and fog. We could distinguish engines running and tank tracks squeaking. We, the G.I.s, attempted to inform our superiors that possibly the Germans were assembling lots of tanks and equipment within a few miles of our location. We were informed by our squad sergeant that it could be either American or German movement. However, it wasn't our place to worry. The brass knew what they were doing and that we would be told what to do. In the early evening of December 16th, in black darkness, German tanks, followed by infantry, started passing through the village. We were ordered by our squad sergeant to fire at the tanks and infantry. Our 40 rounds of ammunition were gone within a few minutes. Most of our squad was killed within the first few minutes of the battle. Five of us that survived slipped into a root cellar and spent most of the night listening to a continuous line of German tanks passing within twelve feet of our location. In the early hours of the morning, December 17th, our company commander, Captain Cashin, went outside with his arms waving over his head, yelling, "'Officer! Officer!' and surrendered to the Germans.' About daylight, the Germans ordered us to come out, or that a tank would fire into the root cellar. Someone opened the door, and there were several SS troops, and a tank with the muzzle pointed into the root cellar. The SS troops searched us. The one that searched me was like a perfect gentleman. The first thing he did was to take two cigarettes from a package of four in my coat pocket. He put one in his mouth and one in my mouth. He lit both our cigarettes and put the remaining two cigarettes back in my pocket. He spoke good English. He told me to put my arms down, and that if I behaved, that I wouldn't be harmed. I found the SS. troops to be very professional soldiers. They didn't blatantly mistreat us in any way. The rules became very simple: do exactly what they ordered or get shot. They took the four of us to a big barn in the village. There were possibly 20 other G.I.s in the barn, and several G.I.s were wounded, lying down around the barn and nearby. By dark, there were maybe 100 G.I. prisoners held in the barn. We spent the night in the barn. A few attempted to escape and were shot. December 18th, many prisoners were assembled in a formation and started walking, I assumed, toward Germany. All wounded prisoners that couldn't walk were shot in the head by SS troops. It was extremely difficult to see and hear the young men who were wounded and couldn't walk, beg for their lives. The German soldiers approached with pistol drawn for the purpose of executing the young men simply because they couldn't walk and keep up with the other prisoners in the march back into Germany. I mentally suffered for many years after the war by remembering those young men begging to be allowed to live. And yes, most of them cried and called for their mother. The German soldiers were very efficient at executions. Perhaps the pistol shot was more available, less expensive, and possibly more prestigious for the executioner than a rifle shot. I'm sure that the German executioner may not have enjoyed performing this dirty task. The Germans were so efficient that they didn't care to allow wounded Americans to live and require transportation and medical attention. Instant death was a more efficient method. I imagine that if any of the German executioners survived the war, they too must have lived with the cries of those executed young men in their ears every time they tried to rest. We marched all day without food or water. They kept us overnight in a big barn. December 19th, we again were marched all day. We were stopped three times during that day to be interrogated. The first interrogating officer was extremely polite at first. He explained as to how necessary it was for them to win the war quickly, to stop all the bloodshed. He suggested that the German troops at the front were without adequate clothing. He politely explained that he must therefore relieve me of my raincoat and topcoat. Most of us G.I.s were dressed in wool pants and shirts, field jackets, topcoats, a raincoat, and combat boots. We were marched for a couple of hours and then interrogated again. This time, the interrogating officer began very politely, asking for military information. He rapidly became furious, screaming at the top of his voice, demanding that we, the useless ones, give up our combat boots for his loyal troops at the front. About this time, curdling screams were heard, I was told that if I did not comply with his orders, that the next station of interrogation would find methods that would make me gladly comply. I believe that the screaming was performed by a German just to scare the hell out of us and hopefully get more information from us. I gave up my combat boots and was supplied with wooden shoes. I was fortunate. Most of the prisoners lost their boots and got no wooden shoes. We were marched again to another interrogation. Where remaining coats and shoes, including watches and jewelry, were confiscated. The Germans had prepared for a long war. They had dehydrated carrots, including the tops, for animal food. They looked like alfalfa hay. They also made bread, consisting of some grain and mostly wood byproducts. Each loaf was dated. The bread would last indefinitely. Some of the bread I ate was more than 10 years old. It was now over three days and nights without food or water. They gave us some green soup made from the dehydrated carrots and a half slice of bread. We were marched to a train station and loaded 50 into each 30-foot freight car. The cars had no toilet facilities or drinking water. We were locked in the cars for three days and nights. Unfortunately, the green soup we ate before being loaded into the cars was not acceptable to our stomachs. We all came down with severe dysentery. With standing room only, no toilet facilities, most of the GIs were down on the floor, wallowing in the filth. At the end of three days and nights, many were dead. The ones that were alive were very sick. We were removed from the freight cars and marched a short distance to a very large camp. The camp was an introduction center, Interrogation, qualification, and distribution center. The Russians, that had been prisoners for a long period of time and were relatively established, made a kettle of soup from some unknown ingredients and were able to give each of us about half a cup of the concoction. After being without a scrap of food or water for over four days, this concoction was a life saving meal. That evening, the English prisoners were able to provide the new prisoners with a cup of tea. From this experience, I learned to appreciate a hot cup of tea. We were given a small, thin blanket. The bunks were three tiers high, running the length of the building, with a one-by-six-inch frame around the entire wood deck. Fortunately, we were stacked like sardines, belly-to-back, very tight for the length of the bunk, but provided some body heat. Unfortunately, you could not avoid contact with the filth of dysentery from others. We would lay on one side or the other, very compact. When somebody could no longer tolerate the pain of bones against board, the word would be passed down the line, and we would all do a sitting twist to turn over on the other side. All prisoners developed bed sores on our shoulders, hips, and knee bones very quickly. Sleeping was very difficult. Some attempt was made to keep like nationals in the same compounds. The French nationals were treated very well. They had adequate clothing. Lots of food supplied by the American Red Cross, shipped to France from the U.S., then transported from France to the German compounds by French-operated Red Cross American trucks. The Americans were treated less fortunate. Some Red Cross food parcels were delivered to the American compound, only to be confiscated by the Germans. Some small portions were issued to Americans who worked in the factories of war production. The Russians were treated like dogs. However, they were accustomed to a very rough and tough life in the Russian military, so they survived reasonably well. The English and Australians were similar to the Russians in their toughness. The Italians, Indians, Pakistanis, and Persians were totally treated as subhuman. The French, Americans, English, and Aussies were not often or purposely abused, but the others were continuously and repeatedly beaten up, bayoneted, and abused. At this camp, there were guards from all ranks of Germans. The SS were highly professional. They rarely abused anybody. If you obey the rules, they treated you like a gentleman. You fracture the rules, they simply and without expression Shot you in the head. The German youth were highly indoctrinated, hated all but Germans, and enjoyed abusing any and all nationals. There was the old guard, consisting of older or wounded military and veterans of World War I. They had no stomach for the German cause, and some were very considerate of the prisoners. Of all the camps that I was in, there were no Jewish people. They were sent directly to the gas chambers. The most probable cause for World War II was that Adolf Hitler hated Jewish people. Six million Jews lost their lives during World War II. Sixty-six million non-Jews lost their lives in defense of the cause. I have no documentation of the names of the camps or proximity to a city. We knew the camps more by number than by name. We were not interested in documentation. We didn't expect that we would live to get out. Your life expectancy was at most a week. I was in the following camps for a few weeks each Altenburg, Limburg am Main, 1A, 3A, 4A, 5A, 7A, 11A, 12A, 13A. I was in a total of 13 camps. I don't remember all of the names. I distinctly remember being in Limburg for a few weeks. The camp was built adjacent to a large electric plant. On Christmas Eve 1944, the English attempted to bomb the power plant with 2,000-pound bombs. The Stalag, being adjacent to the power plant and without identification, was more damaged than the power plant. Many prisoners were killed. I remember the earth roiling from the concussion of the big bombs, similar to ground swells in the ocean. I was on the floor one second, and seconds later was thrown against the ceiling. While in camp, we could see the dogfights, airplanes in combat. The Germans had excellent fighter planes and had several jet fighter planes. The American bombers with their fighter escorts would arrive in great numbers. At this stage in the war, most of the German pilots were aces due to having been in and surviving many, many dogfights. The German jet planes were not efficient and could not carry enough fuel for a prolonged flight. However, they would take off and fly through the American squadrons and have a turkey shoot in a very short time. Their German jets would rip several American planes to shreds. The air would be littered with the American plane parts, parachutes and bodies of the American crewmen. It took considerable time after the turkey shoot for all the debris to fall to the ground. Much of the debris would fall into the prison compound. On one occasion... An American pilot parachuted and landed in our POW camp. It was very unfortunate for the pilot. However, it was good news for us prisoners. The Germans only gave us the news that they wanted us to have, usually biased propaganda. The American pilot enlightened us to the actual events of the war. The Germans had a field day when President Roosevelt died. They told us prisoners that Roosevelt was dead and that he, the only strong leader that the Americans had, and that now he is no longer leading the country, that Germany, with its great leader, would now win the war for certain and quickly. By now, most of the German war machinery and factories were bombed out, and Roosevelt had ceased sending large squadrons of four-engine bombers over Germany to avoid the loss of civilian life and property, not directly war-related. The Germans were very aware of Roosevelt's compassion for not bombing cities where civilians were likely to be killed. They were setting up factories and military headquarters in beautiful resort cities. I remember being on a work trip and walking through Zerbst, a most beautiful resort city. There were thousands of German tanks and other fighting equipment throughout the city. Within two weeks after Truman became president, The sky was filled with very large squadrons of 4 engine bombers. They bombed each and every available target, including Zerbst. There was not one building standing in Zerbst after a heavy bombardment. President Truman's attitude was that if we must fight, let's fight to win. Also, while in the prison camps, every day we could see the V-1 and V-2 missiles flying to the west toward England. Also, the long-range rockets that were not known to us were fired toward the American lines in a contentious roar. With little news or twisted news, we prisoners had no hope of surviving and little hope of our country surviving the war. The Germans had better trained military and equipment than the Allies. The only reason we won the war was our reason for fighting and the dedication and courage of our young men. The tactics of the Allies was that the western front would hold fast while the eastern front would push. The purpose was to have the Germans moving their equipment to the east to stop the thrust, getting them out in the open for the Allied planes to pick them off, exhausting their inadequate fuel supply and wear and tear on their old equipment. Then the Allies reversed the procedure, going from west to east and cutting the Germans to pieces. Unfortunately, the Germans were moving most of us prisoners away from the front to avoid having them recaptured. Therefore, we were walking across Germany from east to west, then from west to east most of the time. We would sometimes work on farms and be kept in barns or other outbuildings. I was fortunate that most of the time I had guards that allowed me to pick up small potatoes and other farm produce to eat. Sometimes they allowed one or two prisoners to go outside the barn and make soup in the farmer's wash kettle. We burned potatoes and opened fire to make charcoal. We ate the charcoal to retard dysentery. The ones that got severe dysentery and lay down usually died within three days. The ones who had the courage enough to stay on their feet, exercise, eat some charcoal. Sometimes they were the ones who survived. Wow, what a story. War sucks. War is a terrible, terrible thing. Will we ever learn our lesson? I doubt it. This is the end of part one of two parts from our memoirs of James Forsyth, World War II, Prisoner of War. It really makes you so thankful to have all the luxuries and food and everything that we have. Ah. <sighs> If you like these kinds of podcasts, by all means, please consider subscribing to The Serial Talker. If you would like to support the channel, you could always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description of this podcast. And if you have a harrowing true story that you would like me to consider reading, send it on. That email is also in the description. And if you think your friends would like this podcast, please share it in your socials. Much appreciated. We'll be seeing you again very soon for part two. Stay tuned. Take care. Ciao.